do. Um, and so let's put our hands together for Jonathan Fitzgerald, everyone. Good morning, church. It's sad because in Southern California, it feels like Christmas when you have lights up. You know, there's no snow. It's not really cold. It's sunny. I guess we shouldn't be complaining, but, you know, that's how it is. Well, I'm happy to be with you guys today. As Obed said, my name is Jonathan Fitzgerald. Some people just call me Fitz. It has never left me um, since high school. So you can call me that. I don't really care what you call me. Just don't call me Mr. Uh, I, I work with students, and they go, oh, Mr. John. I'm like, that is not my name. My name is Jonathan or Fitz. I don't care which one. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about me before we get into the word, just so you know who this is talking to you. Um, I was born and raised in the city of Orange, not too far from here, up in Orange County. I grew up going to church, but my idea of Christianity very much was doing the right things, staying away from the wrong things, and that's a, that's a, a very dangerous cocktail for an arrogant little kid. Um, because when I, when I felt like I was doing good, what happened was I'd get really cocky and arrogant and full of pride and self-righteousness and think like, oh man, I'm so good and like, I deserve stuff from God. And when I was failing and screwing up a lot, I felt like full of despair because my shame and guilt were more than I could handle. And so sometime around uh, junior year of high school, I started going to a new church and God made it very obvious how badly I needed grace. Uh, and thanks be to God, he was full of grace, all the grace that I needed I knew from a pretty early age that I had some desire or calling um, into pastoral ministry. Uh, I got involved at a church in L.A., which a lot of you guys know, Reality L.A. I got involved there in 2008. I lived in the same neighborhood in Los Angeles since 2009, and I've been working on staff at Reality L.A. since 2010. Um, I started off there as an executive assistant, kind of making sure the pastor's lives didn't fall apart. Uh, and then they, they asked me to develop and, and uh, lead a youth ministry um, within the church, which, fun fact, Jeffrey and Mackenzie Taylor um, were serving in the youth ministry when I joined it, and God used them in incredible ways. And they're like, their mark and influence still is present in a lot of what we do today. Um, so love them very much, grateful for them and what they've done within the youth ministry at, at our church. Um, I met my beautiful and pregnant wife. She's back there. Her name is Avila. I met her in... Uh, around the same time I was doing youth ministry, or started youth ministry, actually, in the beginning of 2014. We got married two years later. Um, we've been married for two and a half years, and we're expecting our first little baby girl in uh, February. So very excited about that. Avila's excited to see me with a little baby girl because, I don't know, apparently dads and daughters have special relationships. Okay, that's it. That's all the jokes and everything that I've got today. Now we're going to get really serious, okay? This is the Bible time. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 7 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, I'll read it. You can listen. And if you don't believe that I'm reading it faithfully, you can fact check me later. Or there's Bibles over here. Obed's holding up some Bibles. Okay, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, 
James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunders, thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Pray with me once more. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would open our hearts to receive from you this morning, that we'd hear clearly the things that you're wanting us to hear, and we pray, Jesus, that you'd make it clear what you're calling us to. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place to do your work. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, movies are a big deal in Southern California. Uh, I love movies so very much. I'm especially in love with superhero movies. So you bet when that Avengers Endgame trailer dropped the other day, I watched it five times within like a 30-minute span. I love movies. Um, I almost always go to the Marvel movies opening day, and a day or two after the movies come out, I have people that come up, or like I'm talking to them, and they're like, oh, I asked them, did you see the movie? And usually they're like, no, not, not yet. And they're like, did you see the movie? And I'm like, yeah, I saw it opening day. And like I have this weird sense of like pride or like joy that comes in me because I like being the guy who sees the movie right when it comes out. It's kind of a similar feeling you get when you, uh, a friend comes up to you and says, oh my gosh, you got to check out this new musical artist I've been listening to. Their name is whatever. And you're like, I've been listening to them for 10 years, you know. And you kind of have that like thing in you where you're like, I'm on the inside. I've known about this for a very long time. Now, maybe it's not for music, and maybe it's not with movies for you, but probably you've been in a situation like that before where you were proud for knowing something before other people knew about it, or where you feel a sense of being on the inside while people around you were still on the outside. Well, in Mark chapter 3, what we just read, Jesus is bombarded by a large crowd. They heard about him, but now they wanted to see him. And in the midst of the crowd, this group of people, Jesus pulls together 12 to be a part of something unique. These 12 guys were on the inside. They were the original. But unlike the examples I gave just a minute ago, the way to get on the inside wasn't about who saw or heard Jesus first. It wasn't about what the 12 did at all, actually. The way to get through to the inside was through the call of Jesus. And this is what we're going to learn about today from Mark 3. We're going to learn about the crowd and the called, the group on the outside and the group on the inside. And we're going to see what it truly means to be on the inside with Jesus. So first, let's take a look at the crowd. We know that Jesus was in a tough place here with the Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, You see that just a little bit before what we read today. The Pharisees were the religious rulers of the day, and they didn't like the fact that Jesus was claiming to do things and even claiming to say things that would equal him with God. They didn't like that he was uprooting their religious system of power over people. The Herodians, on the other hand, were the loyal ones to the Roman government. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was undermining the Roman government. And even though they were in opposition to the Pharisees, they came together with a common hatred for Jesus. And so Jesus and his disciples probably very wisely left from them and went to the sea, but they didn't go alone. Mark says this huge, massive crowd followed them. And this crowd came from all over the place, not just the Jewish towns nearby, even from Gentile regions, Tyre and Sidon. And verse 8 tells us that they were driven to Jesus because they had heard what he had been doing. Now, this was taking place a couple thousand years before the internet and Instagram, so word didn't travel the same way back then as it does now. It still traveled fairly fast, though, because they're a very vocal, communicative culture, and so people just talked about it. People knew very quickly who Jesus was. Right when he started doing stuff, word spread very quickly. 
But just for them, just like for us, hearing isn't enough, right? They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to experience Jesus for themselves. And they heard he was healing people. He was healing people of their diseases. He was casting out demons. Some of you in here might be in a similar place as this crowd. Maybe you've heard about Jesus from family or friends. Maybe you've heard about what he has done or what he can do for you. And so maybe you've been coming to church just to see, what can Jesus do for me? Well, Jesus really does heal people even today, and he really does have authority and power over demonic forces. And if you're here to hear about who Jesus is and to experience who Jesus is, I believe he wants to show you today. I believe that the Spirit wants to make it clear who Jesus is. Every, uh, every Thursday at lunchtime, I teach at a public middle school's Christian club uh, in Koreatown in Los Angeles, and there's usually around like 40 kids that will come to this, this Christian club. Uh, some of them are Christians, some of them aren't Christians, and some of the kids come just because I bring pizza and snacks. So they're just there because I have food. They smell it in the halls, and they like, don't want to eat their like, public school lunch food, so they come and eat a, a piece of pizza, as if Little Caesars is that much better. Um, but I've heard, I've heard the Christian kids, sometimes they'll make comments about, about the other kids that are there just for the pizza, and they'll make some kind of judgmental comments about they're not here to learn about Jesus, Ugh, and they get kind of frustrated about it. There's a sense of self-righteousness in what they're saying because they're frustrated. They're like, we're here for Jesus. What are they here for? And I'm quick to remind them that it doesn't matter why people want to be there. We're just happy that they're there. Most of us probably met Jesus when our motivations were all wonky, right? Like, it's not like all of us came to Jesus with the perfect, like, oh, glory to you, Jesus. No, we came to Jesus with our own desires. We probably came to Jesus because we wanted something or, or because we thought he could do something for us. And so I'm quick to tell the kids, just, it's good that these kids are here. And I think that's how God responded when we first came to him. I'm just glad that you're here. Jesus meets people where they're at. And for those of us who follow Jesus, this is important for us to remember. We should not come judgmental towards, become judgmental toward people. First, because we don't always know what's motivating them. But also, the point of this is that we want to see God change hearts. Jesus said that he came to heal the sick, not the healthy. And our goal should be that all people, even, even the ones who are interested in Jesus for the wrong reasons, our goal should be that they hear and meet Jesus and experience the transformation that he brings. Aside from that, even today, for those of us who follow Jesus, do we even always have the right motivations? Honestly, don't we sometimes view God as, as a cosmic vending machine where we put in our good deeds and our prayers and hope that he gives us what we're asking some of you in here might not be followers of Jesus, but you've heard about what Jesus can do for you. You've heard about what Jesus might be able to do in your life. And I want you to know that we're glad that you're here. This is a space where you can come and experience Jesus, even if you're like, I don't know if I like this guy. I also want you to know that Jesus knows your deeper needs. He knows what's going on inside of you. So don't be surprised if he changes your heart and makes you see things a little bit differently than you thought when you first came in. So the crowd came to Jesus because he heard, they heard that he could heal them, and they wanted to experience that for themselves. Mark says that Jesus was so powerful that people just needed to touch him, and they would just be healed, which you can imagine how chaotic of a scene this must have been, right? A whole crowd just trying to get their fingers on Jesus, and verse 9 and 10 say he was in danger of being crushed because the crowd was coming at, at him. And so Jesus tells the disciples, get a boat ready for me, and most theologians don't think he was trying to, like, escape or like run away, probably just trying to get a safe distance away from the crowd so he can preach and share about uh, the kingdom of God. 
As Jesus and the disciples were nearly being crushed, getting the boat ready, Mark says unclean spirits or demons were present as well. Now, I talked to Obed about this, and he said, you guys have talked about demons, and I'm sure as you study Mark, you'll be talking about this more. So we don't need to get all into it, but I want, uh, I know that some of you, when you hear the word demon, you're like, oh, geez. You know, the thought of a spiritual realm that's around us just seems ridiculous. And for some of you, you hear the word demon, you're like, ooh, we're going to talk about spiritual stuff. Like, this is exciting, because you're obsessed with, like, this invisible spiritual world that we cannot see. Well, the Bible is clear that a spiritual world does exist that we cannot see around us, and that angels and demons are in a cosmic battle that actually does affect the world around us. But we must not let that truth distract us from the truth that God is at work in our world too. And God is significantly, incomprehensibly more powerful than any of the spiritual forces that are around us. Now, unlike the crowd, the demons knew exactly who Jesus was, right? When they came into contact with Jesus, they fell on their faces, and Mark says they said, you are the son of God. But Jesus did not want them saying this. He was like, guys, stop talking about me. Don't say this out loud. And he ordered them, don't say this out loud. Which might seem a little bit weird to most of us because we read that and it's like, you're not really being that secretive, Jesus. Like you're healing people. You don't just like heal people and cast out demons and go unnoticed, right? So why was Jesus telling demons to hush? (laughs) Like why was he telling them to stop talking? Well, it's important to remember that Jesus was claiming to be the Christ, Okay, the Christ, that's a Greek word for Messiah, which is a Hebrew word for the anointed one. And in Jewish culture and in in the Old Testament, uh, the anointed one was usually the king or the priest. So in Jesus saying, uh, in Jesus being the Messiah, what it's really saying, he's the anointed king of Israel. And when the demons say, you are the son of God, that would have triggered everybody around them to hear, oh, Messiah, king of Israel, right? And in the scripture right before this, in Mark 3, 6, It said that the Pharisees and Herodians were trying to destroy Jesus. And if they heard Jesus saying right off the bat, I am the Messiah, the the anointed king of Israel, the Pharisees would have been like blasphemy, and the Herodians would have been like treason, right? And so Jesus was on a mission, and he knew that it was not the right time for him to be put on trial and for him to be killed. And so he says to the demons, stop talking. Don't say this out loud right now. There's likely some other stuff going on uh, with, with Jesus' command to the demons as well. And one theologian put it well when he said, Jesus' purpose for this command is likely twofold. First, to demonstrate his supreme authority over Satan's forces. And second, because the demons are inappropriate heralds of his person and mission. Jesus will reveal his identity in his own time and through his own words and deeds. What we see in this, and what's important for us to walk away with, is that Jesus had the authority to command the demons, and they had no choice but to listen to him. He wanted his identity to be revealed in his own time, in his own way. Now, even though Jesus was trying to keep his identity quiet from the people around him, Mark, who wrote the book we read from, uh, was not trying to keep the identity of Jesus quiet. He's making it explicit who he thinks Jesus is. And so we've seen the crowd who came to Jesus to experience healing and freedom. But in verses 13 to 19, we move away from the crowd, the outside, and we move into the called, those on the inside. Mark says that Jesus and his disciples went up to a mountain, and he called and appointed 12 disciples to himself. Now, the calling of the 12, we're going to look at two main things with this. Number one, it reveals who Jesus is. And number two, it tells us why Jesus calls So first, let's look at how the calling of the 12 reveal who Jesus is. I'm going to read some of the verses again for us. 
And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew, Thomas and the James, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot. Now, some of you hear that and you think, how does that reveal anything about Jesus to us? And that's a great question. The first century Jews who are reading the book of Mark would see it clear as day. But for us, it's going to take some unpacking to really see how this is revealing Jesus to us. First, we see the authority of Jesus in verse 13, where it says, Jesus called to himself those whom he desired. Throughout the Bible, you read the Old Testament, it is God who calls people to himself. You think about Abraham, Moses, the prophets. God calls people to himself for his purposes. But here, Jesus is the one who's calling people to himself for his purposes. And Mark's trying to get us to see this connection. He's not just saying that because. He's saying, okay, Jesus does this thing. And you guys know God did that before. And I'm saying Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is putting himself in the place of God. And on a side note, I love that this is the way Mark tells us Jesus calls the disciples. Uh, He doesn't say Jesus called the disciples because they were the most educated people. He doesn't say he called the disciples because they're really gifted leaders or they were really, really smart and they had incredible character and integrity. That's not what he says. Mark, in fact, you'll see this as you continue through Mark. Mark pulls no punches when he's like just throwing shade on the the disciples. Um, He makes it very clear that they constantly failed to understand who Jesus was and his mission to the world. And we know that disciples weren't educated people. They often sought to serve themselves instead of serving other people. And they were very self-centered and didn't understand leadership in the way of Jesus. It's been said that Jesus doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And that's certainly true for these disciples here. Not only were they not the most qualified, some of them had very opposing views and values. Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector are really good examples of this. Let me tell you about zealots and tax collectors here. Zealots were revolutionaries. They were, they were super patriots. They were all about freeing Israel from Roman oppression. Tax collectors were traitors and collaborators. They sided with the Roman government and even perpetuated the oppressive, oppressive systems of the Roman government. And Jesus calls these two enemies to be a part of his team, which seems like a ridiculous way to build a team. Come on, Jesus. This seems like the worst way to do it. But Jesus doesn't call the best or the most perfect. And he doesn't always call the ones that make the most sense. Jesus calls those whom he desires. And this is something I believe God wants us to remember today. The church is never going to be filled with people that have everything figured out. The church is never going to be filled with people who think exactly the way that you think. The church is never going to be filled with people who love others the way that we should. We're going to fail in these things. If you find yourself in a church like that, it's either a miracle or more likely they're all just lying. Like that's not real. The church is made up of people who are natural enemies. People who apart from Jesus might have nothing in common at all. But Jesus brings us together. And what we share in common with him is is more important than anything else that we could share in common. Now if we're honest, there are probably people in the church that we would maybe not want to be there. There are people that aren't very loving. Maybe they don't value the same things that we value. Maybe they don't care about holiness or being like Jesus the way that we think that they should. Some people might be thinking of you. I don't know. 
God wants all people. God brings all people to himself, and he's given each one of us a calling that we don't deserve. God brings people to himself so he can transform them, but he also uses other people, usually the ones that are hardest for us to love, to transform us. We as a church, we need each other. And God desires us to be united in him, even if we disagree about everything else. In John 17, we have one of Jesus' prayers recorded. And in verse 23, he said, I in them, his disciples, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Our unity as a church is vital, and we need to do everything we can to maintain this unity. It's going to take humility and dropping our own pride. Jesus says our unity with each other is a display to the world that the Father sent Jesus and that he has loved us. The twelve were called, not because they earned it, not because they were good enough, but because Jesus desired them. And if Jesus has authority to choose who he wants, he's putting himself in the place of God. And who are we to argue with God? The second way these verses reveal who Jesus is is through the fact that he called twelve disciples. Now, to us, the number 12 is just a number. It's not that significant. But choosing 12 men is a callback to the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, the first century Jew who's reading the book of Mark, the moment they saw Jesus calling 12, they would immediately think of Yahweh, the God of Israel, choosing the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes of Israel began as 12 brothers who were sons of Jacob. And Jacob was later renamed Israel by God. The 12 brothers started families, they grew in size, eventually they got so big that they were just their own tribes, and the 12 tribes together were the people of God. They were the people of Israel, God's chosen people. Mark is wanting us to see the parallel here between Jesus calling 12 and Yahweh calling 12. Jesus is putting himself in the place of God, the God of the Old Testament, and the Jewish readers would clearly see this, like, oh, He's, he's clearly drawing the distinction or the, the similarity between the God of the Old Testament and Jesus. Now, a minute ago, I said Jacob was given a new name by God in the Old Testament, right? And he was renamed Israel. But in the calling of the 12, Jesus, Mark tells us that Jesus gave new names to some of his disciples, right? Again, he's trying to show us this parallel between the God of the Old Testament and the God, or Jesus in the New Testament. If God was the one who gave people new names, but Jesus is the one who's giving people new names, what does that say about Jesus? He's equal with the God of Israel. And Mark wants us to have no doubt about this. So even though Jesus was trying to keep quiet about his identity, he didn't want the demons making a big show of it, Mark is trying to give us no doubt at all. This is who Jesus is. Verses 13 through 19 show us who Jesus is. And they also, number two, show us why Jesus called the 12 disciples. What was the purpose of the call? And we see this in verses 14 and 15, which I'll read again for you. And Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, the 12 disciples were appointed to a specific role within the church, the role of apostles. And that's not something that we see in the church today. Apostles was a unique role that was instituted in the time of Jesus for specific people to lead the church. And the word apostle just means sent ones. It's just people who are sent. We see in the book of Acts that the 12 apostles went out and made more disciples of Jesus, right, following the Great Commission. The apostles preached the truth of the gospel. They bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus. They cast out demons. They healed people. They even raised people from the dead in the power of the Spirit. 
And every New Testament book that we have was written by an apostle or by somebody who had direct contact with an apostle. But before Jesus told the 12 disciples to do any of the things that they did, he called them to be with him. Before Jesus told the 12 disciples to do anything for him, they called him to be with him. And this is important because Jesus could have just given them an assignment, right? Go and do some stuff. Here, I'm going to have you do all these things over here. But Jesus isn't trying to accomplish his, just trying to accomplish his mission through us. He wants to accomplish his mission with us. Now, it's true that none of us are called to be apostles like the 12, but we all have been called by God to play a part in his kingdom. So whatever your role is in the church, Jesus is calling you first to be with him before he's asking you to do anything for him. Being with Jesus is extremely important, and I want to give you a few reasons why I think it's it's really important for us as followers of Jesus. Number one, we need to hear God's word in contrast to the world's message around us. Every day the world tells tells us what we should value. It tells us where we should find our value. Think about it. We're constantly being told that we can find lasting satisfaction if we just find the the right relationship, just pass the class, if we just get the job or the promotion that we're gunning for. We're constantly being tempted to believe that who we are is based on what we do. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a student, an artist, a business owner, whatever else you're doing, the world is saying find value in what you do. Being with Jesus means spending time listening to his word and allowing the truth that he says to be more real in our lives than what we hear in the world around us. We need Jesus to remind us what we're longing for deep down can only be found in him. And we need Jesus to remind us that loving him and loving other people is more important than any career or degree that we could ever have. Jesus defines our value and it's not based on what we do. We need to spend time Jesus, and one of the ways we do that is by soaking ourselves in the Word. In the Word of God, reading Scripture, hearing Scripture, participating in the preached Word on Sundays or whatever else, being in the Word teaches us who Jesus is. It teaches us how we can pray and how we can involve Him in our everyday lives. We need to hear the Word of God in contrast to the Word of the world around us. The second reason it's important for us to be with Jesus is because we become like the people that we spend time with. We all know this is true. I'm going to give you a couple little examples um, for this. I had a friend who just, I don't know why, started just saying OMG all the time. Just OMG, OMG, oh, you see that OMG? And then I noticed that I started saying it occasionally, and I was like, that's weird. And then I started hearing my other friends say it too, and I was like, oh, um, I felt like we were in high school or something. And so what we noticed is we all were being influenced by this one person who was saying OMG all the time. I'll give you a, a, a deeper example or something that's a little more meaningful um, than just saying OMG. Um, uh, Avila, my wife, is an extremely empathetic person, uh, which means whatever somebody else is feeling, she feels that thing like just as much as they do. Um, and sometimes like really weird ways, it's like why? she reads the news and she starts crying, and I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, but she's so empathetic, and it's made her very compassionate and kind to people. And for those of you who know me, especially Jeffrey McKenzie, uh, compassion and empathy are not necessarily my strongest suit. I have a hard time, like, getting in the mind of somebody else and, like, feeling whatever they're feeling. But I hope and I think that the more I've been around Avila, those are things that have been influencing me. And I think that I've become a little more compassionate or a little bit more empathetic just by being around her. If we're spending time with Jesus, we will become like Jesus. 
We are going to learn to love like him. We will learn to be compassionate like him. We will, we will learn to be sacrificial like him. If you spend time with Jesus and you're not becoming like Jesus, I think you need to ask yourself whether you're spending time with Jesus or just going through the motions where it looks like you're spending time with Jesus. Spending time with Jesus changes you. You become like who you're around. The third reason we need to be with Jesus is so that he can change the deepest parts of us. We human beings are very capable of doing the wrong, right things for the wrong reasons. But Jesus wants to change our motivations and our desires so they reflect his motivations and desires. And then from that place, teaching us to do what's right. Allowing Jesus to change and transform the deepest parts of us means that we need to open ourselves to him. We need to be aware of what's going on inside of us and ask ourselves, what am I actually being motivated by? Even when we're doing good things, you have to ask yourself, what's motivating me right now? Am I doing this for myself? Am I doing this for my appearance? Am I doing this for Jesus and others? When we see things inside of us that go against God's desires, we need to go to God and say, hey, change me. I'm not making any excuses for this. No excuses. We all got problems. Go to Jesus and say, here's a problem. I need your help. One of the most common ways God exposes the deeper motivations and desires inside of us is through Christian community, right? Oftentimes, God places people in our lives to get uncomfortably close to us so they can point out the things that we can't see, so they can expose the blind spots in our lives, and that way, we can allow Jesus into those things. Calling people out for ways that they think that they're like wrong or doing something wrong is never about judgment. It's always about letting grace into a space that it wasn't in before. God wants to transform us, and that happens as we spend time with Jesus. One of the ways that we spend time with Jesus is through church community, Christian community. So God hasn't called us to be apostles, but he's called us to follow him in various vocations and spaces in life. And whatever God has called you to do today, he's first called you to be with him. Earlier, we saw that the disciples weren't the best and they weren't the most qualified for the job. But listen to what Acts 4.13 says. It, It says this, Now when the elders and the scribes saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The fact that the disciples spent time with Jesus was obvious to everybody around them. And this was going to leave a much longer-lasting impression, uh, impression than any education or any skill that they had. Jesus called the twelve into a relationship with him, into a space where they could be influenced and transformed by him. He didn't just want to modify their behaviors or make them look good on the outside. He knew that by being with him, they would be transformed and made into completely new people. In John 15, 4-5, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What we do for God should flow out of our relationship with God. Hopefully, we can all see the importance of being with Jesus now. But before we move on to the other things that Jesus called the 12 to do, I want to talk about the fact that Jesus' call to be with him before doing anything for him might be a significant paradigm shift for a lot of us. When most people think about God or some higher power out there, they don't generally think of, of the point of everything being with God. There's a pastor named Sky Jatani who wrote a book called With, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God. And he breaks this concept down by saying there are four main ways or general ways that humans relate to God. He says we live life under God, over God, from God, or for God. 
And when we live our lives primarily in one of these four ways, we aren't relating to God the way he wants us to. Let me explain a little bit what he's talking about with these four categories. First, he talks about living life under God. We know that God is the creator of the universe. He's the one who's in control. He's sovereign over all life. And in this sense, it's true we do live under God. But some of us live our lives as though God's main prerogative for us is to give us a bunch of rules and commandments that we have to follow. And if we fail to follow them, he's not going to be happy with us and he's going to cast us away from him forever. Jatani says, life under God seeks control of the world through religion by manipulating God through ritual or morality. Life under God views him as a capricious deity who must be appeased in order to garner blessings and avoid punishment. Some of you in here might relate to God that way. You're constantly afraid of making God upset. You're constantly living in fear that you're not doing a good enough job. The danger with this is that when you feel like you're doing a great job, you think that God has to accept you or that God owes you something for your good works and you become judgmental toward others thinking that people just need to be more like you if they want to be cool with God. On the flip side, when you keep screwing things up and keep giving into sin, you become full of, of depression and despair because you feel at any minute something bad's going to happen to you because God's not happy with you. You live your life afraid of God. You read your Bible, you pray, you come to church because you're just like, oh, I got to do the right thing or else God's going to be unhappy with me. The second way a lot of us relate to God is by living life over God. And I think another way of saying this is simply living life, living life without God or living with yourself in God's place. Jitani says this about, about life over God. The life over God posture imagines him to be the opposite of life under God. God is a rational and predictable calculation, a watchmaker whose laws and principles govern the world in his place. Christians who live their lives uh, in life over God often view the Bible as a book of good principles, like a way to have a good life, a safe life. It's not the active and, and present word of God. You're not afraid of God as some cosmic rule giver. You view God as a list of good principles that gives you a good life. Some of you in here might relate to God in this way. You might, you might think Christian principles are good, and if, if more people just accepted the Christian worldview, then things would be a little bit better. But you don't view God as a person. You don't view God as a relationship at all. And the danger with this way of relating to God is that you end up living your life as a functional atheist. You affirm God with your mouths or reading the Bible, but you live like God isn't real. The God of the Bible is interested in more than just giving you a good life through obeying his commands. He wants a relationship with you. The third way many of us relate to God is living our lives from him. The simplest way to think about living your life uh, from God is, is as though God exists to give you what you want. Jutani says this. He says, The life from God posture is so appealing because it doesn't ask us to change. What we desire, what we seek, what we do, and how we live, all shaped by consumerism, are not disrupted. Our values and way of life are simply projected onto God and incorporated into a religious system in which we receive divine assistance to meet our needs. In this way, Life from God is nothing more than consumerism with a Jesus sticker slapped on the bumper. That one cuts a little deep for us Americans, right? Because even though God cares about our needs and our desires, if we view, if we view God as primarily a means to an end, we're missing the whole point. Some of you in here might primarily relate to God in this way. You think that following Jesus means that nothing in your life needs to change. God accepts you. He's full of love. Nothing in you needs to change for him. He accepts everything you say, everything you do, and every motivation. 
And the danger of relating to God in this way is that you're forgetting the fact that when Jesus called you to follow him, he called you to deny yourself and pick up your cross. Following Jesus is not about self-fulfillment. It's about self-denial. You forget sometimes that God created us in his image when we're trying to create God in our image to give us what we want. The fourth way many of us relate to God is by living our lives for him. And this way of living with God is really a reaction to the Christians who just don't do anything, right? And the simplest way to explain life for God is that God gets replaced by his mission. Jitani says this. He says, Some great goal, understood to be initiated by God and carried forward by us, defines everything and everyone. An individual is either on the mission, an object of the mission, an obstacle to the mission, an aid to the mission, or a fat Christian who should be on the mission. Some of you in here might primarily relate to God in this way. You don't feel like you're relating, to, or you're, you're relating to God right unless you're doing things for God. You feel like your value is determined by what you're accomplishing for God. And the danger with this way of relating to God is twofold. Number one, you forget that God is the goal. God himself is the goal. You get more focused on doing things for God than God himself. And number two, when you find yourself in a position where you can't do anything for God, you feel unfulfilled, unsatisfied, and maybe even de- depressed. Paul found himself in a similar position. Paul the Apostle. He was in a prison cell. He couldn't do anything for God. And he wasn't depressed. He sang songs. He was happy. He knew that even his suffering was glorifying God. Each one of these four ways of re- relating to God is problematic. And the question that we should be asking ourselves today is this. How do I relate to God? How do you relate to God? Are you primarily living under him as though his main goal is getting you to obey his rules? Are you primarily living over God as though he can be controlled by your knowledge of biblical principles? Are you living your life from God as though he exists to make you happy and doesn't require anything from you? Are you living life for God as though all he cares about is what you do for him? Listen, all of us are tempted to relate to God in the wrong ways. But Jesus offers us a fifth way, life with him, life with God. Before Jesus is calling you to be a husband or a wife, he's calling you to be with him. Before Jesus is calling you to be a mom or a dad, he's calling you to be with him. Before Jesus is calling you to your job or to your career or to your school, to your family or to your friends, Jesus is calling you to be with him. Being with Jesus is more important than anything else because being with Jesus empowers us to accomplish whatever it is he's asking us to do. You'll be more faithful in your calling if you're doing it with Jesus. You'll be more fruitful in your calling if you're doing it with Jesus. You'll be more satisfied and fulfilled if you're doing life with Jesus. First things first, be with Jesus. This is something we need constant reminders of, right? This isn't just like a Sunday sermon, go away and you're good. This is like set reminders on your phone every hour. You're with Jesus right now. You're making calls with Jesus. You're changing a poopy diaper with Jesus. Whatever you're doing, Jesus is with you. We need reminders of that all day. And it's only when we understand that this is what Jesus is calling us to first. It's only when we understand he wants us to be with him that we can understand properly the things that he's calling us to do. So second to being with Jesus, the apostles, the 12 disciples, were next called to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Again, this was a specific role for the apostles, 
But what, that doesn't mean that the principles don't apply to us today. Scripture elsewhere says similar things about every believer, right? Not all of us are preachers, but we're all called to share the, the gospel with people that we work and play with. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In Ephesians 4, Paul the Apostle says God appointed uh, prophets, apostles, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers not to do the ministry themselves, but to equip the church for the work of ministry, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And this means that we all have a part to play as the body of Christ. We all have a part to play in spreading the gospel. It's not just for the vocational ministers out there. In Christ, we also have authority to cast out demons. In Luke 10, Jesus sent out 70 disciples. And they went to different towns to preach and to cast out demons. And when they went back to Jesus, they said, Dude, that was crazy. Even the demons were subject to us in your name. And in the book of Acts, we read about believers who weren't part of the original 12 casting out demons as well. The big idea is that Jesus is the one with authority over demons and Satan. And whoever Jesus calls to himself receives his authority. It's not that me and you have power over demons. It's not that we can do something to shut demons up the way Jesus did. But Jesus is the one in authority. Because Jesus is in us, Satan doesn't have authority over us. We have authority over him. Now, with all of this, with all that we've been talking about, with all of these things, we should be asking the question, how? How is this all possible? How can we move from the outside to the inside? How can we live life with Jesus? How can we participate in the mission of God? The Bible teaches that there is a chasm between human beings and God, and that every human, each one of us, is sinful. And sin is not just disobeying the commandments of God. Romans 1 says sin is serving and worshiping the creature, creation, rather than the creator, God. And so sin is actually when human beings put ourselves in God's place and say, all things for me. But because God would not bow down to us, sin separated us from him. And the Bible says that we are enemies of God. We are children of wrath. And that means that if there's any way that we could be with Jesus, it's not going to be something that we can do. God knew that the only way we could be with him is if he came first to be with us. Listen to what Matthew 1, and 23 says. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is something that we Christians celebrate every year during the Christmas season, right? That God became a human, a little baby, God became a human. The God of the universe who is holy and set apart, perfect and sinless, all-powerful, all-knowing. He was born as a human, not in a palace, but in a stable. Not to wealthy and influential parents, but to a carpenter and a young woman. Jesus is God with us, and he came to the earth to live the perfect life that we should have done, should have lived and failed to. He came to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be with him. And in Mark 3.19, we get a little hint of what's to come later in Mark, when Mark says that Jesus also called Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Part of Jesus' plan all along was the cross. And again, Mark is just being explicit about this stuff, right? 
Jesus knew the only way for us to be with him is if he first came to be with us. And that's how much God loves us. That's how badly God wants to be with you, that he sent his only son to die on the cross for your sin. God made a way for us to go from the outside to the inside, and it's through the cross of Jesus. All God requires of us is to turn to him, that we see our sin the way that he sees our sin, and that we accept the grace that he offers us. Today, Jesus is inviting each one of us into that intimacy with him, into being with him. And we can have confidence in that because God first came to us. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you came to us, that you didn't just give us a bunch of rules and commandments to obey so we could fight our way up to you. You did the work and came to us. In the ultimate act of humility, God, you became a human. We praise you for that today. We praise you for doing what nobody else could do and living the life that we should have lived and dying on the cross for our sin. God, I pray for each one of us in this room today that we would remember that before you call us to do anything for you, you're calling us to be with you. And I pray that that would shape us. Even for the city of San Diego, God, that all the Christians in this city would be known as people who were with Jesus, just like the apostles. That has more power to transform and to change anything in this city. And so we ask that you would be working that out in our hearts, God. Teach us what it looks like to be with you every day, whatever we're doing. And God, we pray that as we spend time responding to your word today, Spirit, we ask that you be convicting us and showing us spaces in our hearts that you want to deal with. Spaces in our hearts that need grace, forgiveness, and love. And we pray that this would be a place of transformation today. That this would be a place where we are made into people who are known to be with you. Father, we love you and are so grateful for your love for us. Be with us now as we respond to your word. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. As we move into a time of response, let's take some time to reflect on God's word this morning. And I'd encourage you to pray and ask God to search your own heart. And ask God what parts inside of you you need grace. What parts inside of you you need to be exposed. Even acknowledging some of the the wrong ways that we relate to God in our day-to-day lives. And ask God to teach you how to relate to him that he actually wants to be with you. Ask God to remind you of his love for you. And even today, after we are worshiping and singing together, let's remind each other of this. God has called us to be with him before anything else. Let's do that today.